And the thing is, every time I did achieve one of these milestones, I felt amazing. And like, I would always share it with my parents because it wouldn't mean anything until I shared it with them and they were happy. And like, literally we were in this bubble of joy, but the thing is it would always pop. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. We bring you leaders acting on their environmental values because too many people told me, I want to act, but if others don't, then what I do won't matter. We're here to make it obvious that you're not alone. You're part of a global community, a majority. Also, too many people told me, doing small things doesn't make enough of a difference and big things take too much work. Action matters more than the size you start with. You'll hear how action motivates guests from small things to doing big things. You won't find guilt, blame, doom, gloom, or telling people what to do. You will find leading without relying on authority, which brings what I found missing from acting on environmental values. Joy, discovery, growth, community, meaning, purpose, value, sharing. With global demand for environmental action, I bet you'll see that acting on your values doesn't distract from your life and career. Following these leaders' footsteps and beyond enjoying the environment, I bet you'll see promotions, raises, more loyalty and trust in your relationships, and more. When people recommend guests for my podcast, they tend to recommend people who are environmental, people doing environmental things, people doing recycling, stuff like that. I'm happy to get people like that, but my goal number one is leaders. I want to bring leaders because people who influence others influence others, and we can learn from them. That's what Natalie Kogan is. She is someone who influences herself and influences others. So if you think that you face challenges, if you want to know what you can achieve, listen to what she did because her beginning of the story is how she came over as a refugee in projects to working at McKinsey to a very happy family life. And actually this internal part is especially important, how to be happy. I think it's fair to say that that's what she's devoted her life to is how to be happy. And from the perspective of skills that you can develop through practice and practice that she teaches and that she practices as well. So. So happiness is not just something you're born with, it's something that you can do. And I consider that important for working on the environment because it's about happiness, it's about joy. She focuses on what works, and I think that's what people who act on cleaning up the environment could learn from. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Josh. I'm here with Natalie Kogan. Natalie, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. We were just talking, and I said, oh, wait, we got to start recording this. <laughs> yes. Uh, we were talking about environmental things, but I want to go back uh, because some people might not have heard of you and might not know you, and I wonder if you can share a bit of your background. You talked about coming from Russia and yeah. I want to give you a place to lead to. The URL called Happier. Uh-huh. I'm like, wow, how'd you get that one? And so Happier yeah. is a big thing about you. And I wonder if, if you can lead up to that. Yeah, I can. And it's actually, you know, it's, um, I always say like, if you ask me, I don't know, 20 years or even 10 years or even, I don't know, seven years ago, if you told me that, oh, you know, in a few years, you're going to be the, you know, author of a book called Happier Now and you're going to have found a company called Happier and you're going to teach companies and individuals the skill of living happier, I would laugh you out of the room because, well, I come from a country, you know, there's a thing they say about Russians, that Russians are good at three things, suffering, making others suffer and complaining about suffering. <laughs> and it'd be really funny if it wasn't almost entirely true and not only in the evil sense of suffering, but just it's a, you know, the Russian people, and I'm Jewish also, which is why we left because Jews were persecuted. So we left as refugees. But, you know, there's a deeply rooted tradition and I have suffering as like a deep core part of my DNA. The women in my family are amazing at suffering. We express love through suffering. And so in a way, my journey to creating what I, to doing what I do, to being the teacher of the skill of happiness 
uh, began in the oddest place. So I grew up in Russia. And when I was 13 years old, it was still the Soviet Union at the time. And we're Jewish. Jews at the time were persecuted by the government. And so when I was 13 years old, my parents and I left. We left with basically nothing. We were allowed to bring a couple suitcases with us of stuff. And we spent several months in refugee settlements in Europe. We waited in the refugee settlements in Europe, waiting for permission, applying for permission to come to the United States as refugees. My parents were interviewed several times. Eventually, we were granted permission and we uh, settled outside of Detroit in the projects. Uh, Very grateful to get welfare and food stamps just to get started. And, you know, uh, we were very excited. Uh, This was always my parents' dream for me to have the opportunity. Yeah, so enough, we were excited to be in the projects in Detroit. Well, we were excited to be in America. This okay. was the dream. This was, you know, Can my you parents. The year? So this was 1989 uh-huh. in the summer of 1989, actually in August. It's coming up. It's going to be 29 years on August. We landed in uh, the projects outside of Detroit. And that's exactly the point you bring up. I was saying we were, I mean, my parents' dream was always to give me an opportunity to grow up in a country where I could be free to be who I wanted a Jew, not a Jew, entrepreneur, not entrepreneur. And so we were very excited at the same time, at least for me, just completely overwhelmed with so much fear and self-doubt. I mean, we hardly spoke English. Uh, We had no idea like how to get around life. Like my dad brought me to the bank to help him open a bank account because like I could speak a little more English and but just the idea, like we didn't know what a bank account was. No one had money in Russia. So you didn't need a bank. You know, I went to eighth grade in Scarlet Middle School. I mean, if you think about eighth grade kids, my daughter just graduated from eighth grade. It is not the nicest time for our humanity, (laughs) to say the least. And here I come. I'm on food stamps, on welfare. I have like two outfits to my name, whatever we got from donations. I hardly speak English. And whatever I do speak comes out with this horrible Russian accent. I mean, they gave me a run for my money. And so it was... It was a really rough time, like especially, you know, as a teenager, like you don't want to move across the street. You already don't know who the heck you are. And so I, um, I, w- I felt pretty lost. And, you know, in Russia, my kind of core identity was I was really smart and a hard worker. And all of a sudden I was in like remedial English classes. And so it was a, it was a really rough time for me. And then there were these flashes of light and the flashes of light were anytime I achieved something, you know, so like. I remember when they moved me from remedial English to regular English. That felt amazing. Like, I was like, oh, my, okay, oh my God, like, okay. Or like the first time I said something in English and no one made fun of me. Or, you know, the more and more time passed, like I kept working really hard and I would achieve. Like I eventually, you know, we moved out of the projects. We moved to New Jersey. I graduated top of my high school class, winning all these awards. I got into a great college. And so the happiness bubbles were all around achievements. And so I kind of adopted this mindset of I'll be happy when. And I don't think I'm unique that way at all. I mean, I've had really the privilege over the last couple of years through Happier to teach and connect with hundreds of thousands of people. And I know I'm not unique. I know many of us have this I'll be happy when, you know. I'll be happy when I graduate with a great grade or get that job or gain weight or lose weight or meet my soulmate or get that dream house. You know, this is kind of how our brain works. And I lived with that kind of I'll be happy when um, mentality for the better part of my life. I mean, I, um, you know, I worked really hard. I had to overcome a lot, but I achieved so much of my I'll be happy when's. I mean, you know, from a refugee from the projects, I, you know, graduated top of my class at Wesleyan University. I 
got very prestigious jobs out of college. I went to work at McKinsey and Company, a consulting firm. I became a venture capitalist by the age of 26 as a woman in an industry where there's like less than 5% women. You know, I wrote books. I started companies. I moved to New York City, which was the big dream. I married my college sweetheart. We had a beautiful daughter. Like all this, like the dream you would think on the outside. And the thing is, every time I did achieve one of these milestones, I felt amazing. And like, I would always share it with my parents because it wouldn't mean anything until I shared it with them. And they were happy. And like, literally we were in this bubble of joy, but the thing is, it would always pop. Like it would, that feeling of euphoria would always go away. And eventually, you know, a few years ago, I found myself in a place where I just couldn't chase it anymore. Like I could not keep, you know, fighting for this like big happy. It just wasn't, I could never hold on to it. And the other piece of it is I was really harsh towards myself because I kind of felt like that's where motivation comes from. So like, you always have to push yourself and just keep going. Like I got obsessed with grit. You know, I feel like it's our American obsession a little bit. And so what happened a few years ago is I, I hit a wall um, in every sense of that word. I literally just like the best way I can describe it is I just couldn't keep like running anymore. I wasn't enjoying any of this great life I had built. I never felt okay with myself. Even like when things were good and I hear this from so many people, it's like I couldn't let myself feel the joy because I was afraid something was going to go wrong. I knew that feeling was going to run out. And that's when I stumbled, literally stumbled on an airplane into research, into emotional well-being. And I thought it was kind of crazy that people study this stuff because like I never in Russia, like, and in my family, we didn't talk about happiness, like as a goal, you know, the goal in life was to like be educated and have a good job and take care of your family. And so I was kind of baffled that people studied happiness, but they did. And no, there's no, tremendous I, amount of, yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but I feel like, yeah. I feel like there's about to be a, a big change. Yes. And before we get to it, I want to get a few things about the, about the life you described so far that for you to say that you were excited to be in a Detroit project suggests that materially speaking, it was pretty rough. And I think that there are a lot of people, a lot of people listening to this right now are probably never had a situation mm. as challenging as you had, as materially mm-hmm. speaking as challenging as you had. I think a lot of people nonetheless will say, yeah, well, easy for her. She had X, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so it was mm-hmm. easy for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you keep describing situations that most people would describe not as privileged as privileged. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I was fortunate to have this or lucky to have mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything? And so you said you were always, you had these nuggets or, or bubbles of happiness all over. Was there something special that you had that other people didn't? It's what a great question. I have to tell you, no one's asked me this question. It wasn't automatic or guaranteed in any way. And the first thing I have to say, and I always say, like, the, the, if, if there was one thing that I feel I have always been privileged to have, and it is an incredible ingredient into my life, is my parents and our family. So I'm an only child, uh, shockingly not a psychopath. I can share pretty well. Um, I like people. You know, there's all these funny, crazy things that <laughs> said about only kids. But I'm really close with my parents. But not even that. Like my parents and the kind of people they are, and just the way that they have always. You know, our life in Russia was not very peachy. I mean, there was hardly enough food. Often in the winter, my grandparents who lived in the south would have to send us some. You know, my father is one of the most brilliant scientists alive, but he, it took 10 years for him to be allowed to even defend his PhD because he was a Jew. You know, they, they dealt with a lot, but 
there was always just this foundation of love and support. And I think that is the one of the main ingredients that has helped me um, get through that horrible time. And the thing is, I share this in my book, like my parents really didn't know how to help me. They, first of all, had their own problems. Like they went out trying to get jobs. Your webpage has a lot of exercises that people can do. And I don't want to, how do I say it? How to, uh, like, I don't want to give away your free stuff. But you have <laughs> no, it's all good. I give a lot away because I want the world to be practicing this. So if people have to give up their story to for the skills to really work, does learning the skills help them identify the story and give up the story? Can it, does, it, does it matter which direction they go in? We can develop emotional tendencies and instincts through actions that we take and that we all have. So, you know, if you um, do, uh, if you express anger a lot, you're, you're going to be really good at feeling angry. And if you express kindness a lot, or if you express gratitude a lot, you get really good at feeling grateful and kind. And so one of the core foundations of, you know, Happier and my book and the programs that we do with companies and individuals is that happiness is a skill. And there, it's just like any skills, you can improve it through practice. And I've identified five core underlying skills through a lot of research and a lot of practice. And each one is founded in scientific research. And those skills, what I ask people to do is just start practicing. I'm not asking you to drop your story. I'm not asking you to believe in it. I'm not asking you to think that it's going to work. I'm not even asking you to feel gratitude when you practice gratitude or kindness. I just want you to take the action because I'm just simply asking you to practice. And gratitude is one great place to start with that practice. There's you know four other skills we can talk about it at length. And as I said, I love sharing free stuff. So you can go to happier.com. There's tons of content on each of these skills. They're all in my book. They're there. You know, I try to create a lot of ways for people to connect to this material, but you don't have to believe in it. You just have to practice. Are you enjoying meeting this guest? Are you thinking about what you care about? I recommend making it active. Think about what you could do, not just analyze and plan, not do what others tell you to, but to live by your values. You'll enjoy your results. People will follow you more than you think, and you'll impact more than you expect. Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast for examples of what others have done. I'd heard about gratitude exercises for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, a guest speaker at my friend's class was uh, Joe Polis. I don't know. He's a big marketing guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He said, he said, anyone who does the following exercise, he kind of threw this in like off the top of his head. He said, you know, I'll give you a free marketing course on my site. And the exercise was to do, to write 10 gratitude emails per day for seven days. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's, I was like, okay, great. I'm going to do this. And so the first 10, easy. Next 10, easy. Next 10, well, by 30 or 40 people, you're starting to like, hmm, I don't uh-huh. know that many people that close. Also by like day four, I'm getting responses from people I wrote in day one. And the response, when you write a gratitude email, they write back a, a touching, meaningful gratitude email. Yes. Yes. And now I got like the 10 to write on day four, day five, plus like five from the couple days before. And those have to be much more in depth. Plus, I'm thinking some of these people, it's someone that you feel gratitude to for something that they messed up for you, but you learn from that. And so you feel mm-hmm. gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yours is much easier. <laughs> well, so let me actually, so I actually love that because um, it's intense. So in the, what I find, and I spend so much time thinking about this in my book, I think there's something like 37 
practices to practice the five happier skills. Most of them take uh, one minute. I think the longest one is maybe five minutes because I obsess about how to take this research and how to take these practices that are so impactful, how to make them so simple that people can start doing them without a huge time commitment because then you're more likely to see the benefits and you're more likely to do the more advanced ones like writing 10 emails of gratitude. I'm going to segue at this point to apply this to an area that a lot of people don't feel so happy about. So the environment. Mm. I think a lot of people, when they think about doing something or they think about the issues, they think of, they feel guilty or they, they, they don't blame it because there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. Mm-hmm. And yet blue skies and rainbows and oceans, you know, these are things that could be really, they could make us feel really good. Mm. So when you, th- when you think of the environment, what is, what is, what is, what do you think about when you think about the environment? Yeah, it's, a, it's such an interesting, such a great question. And you mentioned it before, it's, it's kind of been um, percolating in the back of my mind. So it's interesting, right? Because look, we have a lot of environmental problems. Like again, let's start with the skill of acceptance. Let's accept that there are a lot of issues, right? A lot, a lot of issues. And I'm a parent. And so uh, I am constantly like thinking about what is the world? Mia, my daughter, her name is Mia, um, is going to live in. And so there are a lot of issues, but at the same time where I go, and this is probably a product of my, you know, being, I was, I was an entrepreneur and executive in technology for 20 years. Um, and even as part of happier, we have part of it as technology and part of it is not, but I have actually a tremendous amount of hope that we have so much imagination and so much creativity and both in our generation and older generations. And also like I look at Mia and her friends and so much ability to invent and come up with solutions to problems, including problems we create. And so I go to a place of hope because, um, uh, by the way, hope, uh, you know, I, I spend so much time in all this research of emotions. Hope comes when we feel this um, idea that uh, psychologists talk about uh, an abundant mindset. When you're in an abundant mindset, you believe there's a lot of possibilities. And you believe that by working together, you can come up with a lot more solutions than working alone. And it's a very empowering emotion. actually helps you be more innovative and creative and productive. So where I uh, practice going, and it again, it's a practice, is a place of hope and possibility and uh, being surrounded by uh, creativity and innovation, again, in many different ways, including like watching how my daughter approaches the world because she's not yet tainted. Uh, she approaches things like we even did a little workshop in school about how would you fix the environment? Like they were all full of, full of crazy ideas. They don't know that they're possible or impossible. And so that's where I go. Or again, that's where I practice going because just talking about the problems actually doesn't do anything. I'm so glad that you said just talking about things is not enough because cannot wait until it's dire. And so that's my little spiel for you. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I mean, you basically said a lot of what I, I try to communicate as well. You know, when I talk about not flying or not eating packaged food, I got to switch away from these negative terms of not flying is, is not negative in the sense of bad, but negative, it's not doing something. Yeah. But in my head, in my heart, when I'm not flying, I am being a part of my local community. I am creating cultural exchange, learning how to create cultural exchange on my own or learning new cuisine or learning new, uh, creating adventure on my own. And so, you know, people hear me say, 
I don't eat packaged food, but what I'm really doing is enjoying vegetables fresh from the, exactly. from the farm. Exactly. Yeah. As we can, you can describe those in different ways. Exactly. Like you just said, fresh vegetables. Again, like I'm, I'm, I'm being the mirror for you so that the listeners can hear how it makes other people feel like you just said, eat fresh vegetables from a farm immediately. Like also I'm hungry, but like my, I have this half smile on my face. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go make a salad. Look, your action to do something for the environment just also inspired me to go do something healthy for myself. Like that's the power of us communicating the joy of doing things that are good for us or the environment. Like that's the power in that tiny way that we all have instead of like, don't this, don't this, don't this like, okay, yeah, don't this, but what's, what, what is the beauty of the don't? Cause there is. Here's my, and, and here's what I'm doing on this podcast for, and to give you a chance to take a leadership role if you want, because I invite people at their option to do exactly what you're saying. Find one thing that they can do that's based on what they want to do. Is there something that comes to mind for you that you could do? Something that I want to commit to doing, uh, and this has been popping up in like my social feeds, and now I have this interview with you, so I feel like the universe is saying do this, is to stop using disposable water bottles. So it's actually a thing for me because the first hurdle, so I have um, crazy headaches. Like I've always had them since I was a child. And I also tend to not drink enough water. So it just makes that worse, obviously. And so for the past six months, I've been on this like mission to drink more water, drink more water. And what that's meant is I surround myself with water. So when I'm at home or in my home office, like I would have like bottles of water or I'd drink this like um, thing called Hint, like flavored water, whatever. Like I'd have, I put bottles of water in my car. I put bottles of water everywhere just like, you know, to be surrounded by it. And I just realized like about a, a week ago, I'm using too many plastic bottles. And so I bought two glass pitchers, one for my home office, one for office. And in the morning, like I've been trying to fill them up, but I still like, I went to yoga earlier, I grabbed a plastic water bottle because it was convenient, right? Convenient. So I want to make a commitment to you and to your uh, listeners and to myself to stop using plastic water bottles because I'm definitely using a lot. And the joy in that for me is two parts. First of all, I can tell you that I've been drinking so much more water in, when I'm working for my office at home because I love the glass pitcher. And there's something so beautifully aesthetic, like to pour the water from a glass pitcher into a glass. It's like kind of mad men, but like with water, you know, like not a cocktail. Like there's something so beautiful about that. I think it's actually been encouraging me. So I think not using plastic, just like I'm also an artist. I paint like aesthetic beauty is important for me. So I think it's just like my joy in giving up plastic bottles is that like glass feels better and it's more beautiful. And like reusable water bottle just, is more beautiful. Like it's more pleasing. And so that's my action and that's my joy in it. Awesome. So, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb. Well, actually first, what I'd like to do is invite you back to share the experience. And is that something you'd be up to? uh, I would, I would love to do it. I think it's fantastic. Um, I think it's awesome. I would love to. And we scheduled through someone else. uh, Yeah, but we can schedule directly. Don't worry about it. Okay, so we'll schedule. Yeah, we'll schedule for my publicist, but we can we can do it directly. So, and about how long do you think it would take? 
to, to, yeah. to, to fit in. To right. Say, so uh, I have some research on this because I study habits. So we think, you know, we all have this 21 day thing in our head. Like it takes 21 day to form a habit just for what it's worth. Um, it's true only for some things. It's true for the simplest habits. Uh, it actually takes a lot more than 21 days to form any kind of meaningful habit in our lives. Um, for really simple things, 21 days is sounds good, but like for anything meaningful, it takes longer than that. So I just want to share that because like I have that in my head, like, oh, if I'm not, you know, it should take 21 days. So I would say um, we should give it two months because I think this is, the plastic bottles are so pervasive in my life that I feel this is like a significant change. Okay, so good. I want to be fair to behavior science and not um, push myself into a, a quick behavior uh, adoption that doesn't actually stick. All right. So after we stop the recording, we'll schedule for two months and uh -huh. my prediction. Now, everyone listening is, is you're already saying you're going to find joy in this because a lot of people might think it's like deprivation or some challenge or something. Now, even given that, I think that if, if I ask you now to predict how much you'll like doing this, think, call that X. I think what it's still going to be greater than X, even though you know that it's going to be greater than you think it will be. I think it's still going to be greater than that. That's my prediction. So, um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Uh, I will say, so, you know, it's always, um, so first of all, it makes us feel good to anticipate good things. So, like, I am just anticipating being better about not using plastic is making me happier. So that's, I'm already generating the joy. Um, which is awesome. But I'm going to say that it's going to, it's not just about feeling happy. Um, you know, one of the happier skills that I write about is connecting to a sense of meaning in your life. And uh, the best way to connect to a sense of meaning is ask yourself, you know, we derive a sense of meaning when um, uh, we contribute something we're good at to help someone else or a cause we care about. So for me, what I feel like is this is going to do is um, help me feel uh, a little more sense of meaning in my life. Um, because I'll tell you, like, uh, the environment is not something I consciously, like, focus on all the time. It's not part of my work, right? Um, I'm obviously aware. And so I feel like this is just going to open up this new dimension in my life. Um, that, and from that comes a lot of joy of, like, contributing in a positive way. Uh, to something bigger than me. So I think it's not just going to bring some joy, but a little bit of a sense of meaning. And that is part of genuine happiness. Yep. That's, I think, and I think it's going to even be more than that. I think you're going to, I don't want to, well, I'm, I want to say this to like, because having seen this a bunch of times, I think that it's going to kick in with your husband and your, and your daughter. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to start sharing it with others. And something that is now a neutral or not a big part of your life, I think is going to be, something that you connect with other people on and you're going to feel like something you woke up to that was always there. And you were kind of, you could have thought of this earlier. You're, you're going to say something like, I wish I'd done this earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. my prediction. Yep. Okay. I like it. I like predictions. <laughs> so, all right. So I want to wrap up because everyone keeps telling me, don't let them go over an hour. And so we're <laughs> at about an hour now. Yes. And, uh, uh, but I do want to close with one your site has exercises that people can do. Your uh -huh. book has exercises that pe people can do five minutes a day. And as a beginning, like I guess people can stick with five minutes a day as long as they want, but it's, it's also can lead to much more. And you don't sound like a miserable person and <laughs> you sound like 
at the beginning, before the research, you sounded like you're hitting walls. And I, I took away that, okay, you had family that loved you. And maybe some people were born of families that didn't really love them. But I think that you didn't, ha- there's nothing in you that anyone listening to us right now doesn't have or doesn't have access to. Yeah, I would say even more so. I mean, I, um, again, just to remind our listeners, like I come from, you know, my mom is an incredible human being, but my mom um, really believes in suffering. And my mom suffers a lot, small and big ways. Like it's part of who my mom is and part of who my grandma was. It's like a strong tradition in our family. And you know, I come from a culture that is deeply rooted in suffering. So I also feel like I had some weights around my feet um, approaching this, you know. Uh, so I, I had to, I, I broke through some stuff, uh, which maybe some folks listening don't have those heavy weights around their feet um, preventing them. So it, 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 I guess one of the things I want to end with is, if, if we think about happiness as a skill, then maybe we don't have to spend so much energy arguing whether we can do it or not. Because any skill, we know this to be true. If you practice, you can start wherever you are. Good at it, bad at it. But if you practice, you're going to get a little better and a little better. And so, so I just, that's my invitation to everyone listening is can, you know, can we, I'm not asking you to believe you can do it or not believe you can do it or drop your story or not, or think about your past or not. Can you just begin to practice? And when they look for what to do, your page and your courses and, uh, and your book, give people where they can start. I'm going to plug you also, they can do environmental things are also places where you can work on these things too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. True. Absolutely. And, uh, okay. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you in a couple of months. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Some main points that I wanted to reinforce. She brought up how talk alone doesn't work. In that context, we were talking about environmental things. And I think she gets that from her happiness work, that talk alone doesn't do it. You have to act. And she knows about changing behavior, which I believe is rooted in her happiness practice in starting with the basics. That's why her page and her book are filled with actions that you can do, simple exercises, so you can go there now. And her change, over and over again, she looked at change as not the challenge that it was going to take, but the joy It's about what you do, not what you don't. It brings you joy, beauty, commitment, happiness, meaning. Isn't that the world you want to live in? Isn't that the world that you want to create? Does hearing leaders acting on their values make you think of yours? Nothing will make you feel better than acting on them. Value means better. Acting on your values means improving your life. Committing publicly helps many people and builds community too. If you want, click on Commit to a Personal Challenge to share what you do with this community you'll be a leader among leaders. We're more than a podcast. We're a movement to share how acting on environmental values means fun, joy, growth, and so on, not sacrifice or deprivation. If you want to join or help, contact me at josh at spodak.net or at joshuaspodak.com slash podcast. You'll grow as a leader, you'll enjoy yourself, and the world and your communities will thank you for it.